Welcome to the Boots on the Ground podcast, presented by The Mission Continues. Welcome to the latest episode of the Boots on the Ground podcast, presented by The Mission Continues. Today's guest is Lawrence Casey's, a Navy veteran with a remarkable journey of service and volunteerism. Lawrence enlisted during the Cold War era, serving in hotspots like the Persian Gulf during the Iranian hostage crisis under President Jimmy Carter. After his service, Lawrence struggled with the lack of guidance for veterans. His path eventually led him to Team Rubicon, where he began as an instructor. It was here that Lawrence connected with the mission continues. He speaks fondly of the camaraderie and understanding within these veteran support organizations, emphasizing the camaraderie he finds in the company of fellow veterans. With the mission continues, Lawrence has taken the role of platoon leader for New York City, working on notable projects like the Rincon Garden in the Bronx, and discusses his commitment to environmental causes in New York City. Join us as we explore Lawrence's inspiring story, from his naval service to his impactful work with veterans and communities. Charlie Mike. So I guess we'll start at the beginning. Tell me about where you grew up, and did you have any family that served in the military? Uh, I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, and, um, and I moved to New York when I met my wife. That was about, I want to say, 30 years ago, and plus 30 years. So my family, uh, the not... Everybody was in the military, but I can trace back. Let me say I had two uncles. One was Army. Another uncle was Navy who served on the Missouri during Korea. I had a great-grandfather who was Army who served in the city fire department. Did that influence you at all to join the military or what led you to want to join? Yeah. I mean, my military history is not really storied. I mean, I was just sitting in front of the TV and I saw that. The, the It was an aircraft carrier heading off into the sunset, and I said, oh, boy, I want to do that. That looks good. So that was you definitely set on joining the Navy then? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I wanted to join the Navy. What was your job in, in the Navy, and, and what did you do? I was gunsman, but I was sent to a aircraft carrier that had no guns on it, so I pretty much had every other job other than being a gunsman. What did you do while you were in the Navy? Where did you go and, and where did you serve? I deployed twice, well, three times. I was uh, separated on my third cruise. My first cruise was to the Indian Ocean. That was the uh, during the Iranian hostage situation and then crisis. That's when Jimmy Carter was president. Tell us about that, your first cruise. What was it like for you? And was there any memorable moments that you can remember? Yeah, so even though it was considered the Cold War, it was pretty hot over there. Iran was pretty much the big bully on campus, and the cruise was unofficially dubbed the Silkworms and Sea Mines Tour because Iran used to shoot silkworms into the Gulf to try and hit one of our ships. And they would also lay sea mines. They would transit down into this and try and blow up one of our ships. So what was your impression? Uh, Was it everything that you hoped it was? Oh, well... You know, I mean, I was hoping to be able to be stationed on a destroyer or a cruiser and shoot guns all day long, but that didn't happen. So I took a different path. I ended up getting a, a top secret clearance because I was a yeoman in CIC. So they had to, because the messages were secure, I wound up with a top secret clearance. That was not expected. Let's see. I learned how to cook because I wound up in both messes, both officers and enlisted messes. I was a master at arms. I was a fireman. Yeoman. That was pretty much it. Yeah, I, every about every couple of months, I would wind up in a different department. Tell me about your other deployments. Well, the other ones were pretty much 
pretty quiet. The Medi- uh, when you go to the Mediterranean, it's pretty much, you know, you're on station and just kind of doing your thing. You know, there really wasn't much to those. The one cruise that was really memorable to me was the Indian Ocean cruise because we crossed the equator four times during that. We ship itself did over three and a half million miles. There are a lot of protocols that probably had never been done before, like Mombasa, Kenya, and Singapore. So there is there's this, this thing in the Navy where you when you cross the equator, what is that? Oh, like shellback initiation. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Well, I'm not a big fan of it. It's essentially it's hazing on a humongous scale. So not, I wasn't really too thrilled with that. It's an entire Overall. day of being hazed and doing all sorts of weird and unsanitary stuff that I, you know, I just I wasn't really into. Tell me about... But it's a tradition, your, so you had to go through it. <laughs> yeah, you kind of don't have a choice, huh? Especially when, when everybody's doing it, and you're on right. a ship, and you got nowhere to go. Exactly. <laughs> it's as well you can hide in your rack. They'll get you. What was it like living in the ship? Getting out of the Navy for me was kind of hard to describe, because at that point, where was any kind of support for people in the military? I was on my third cruise in the Mediterranean. I was separated. I wound up in Rota, Spain. They flew me back to Naples. In Naples, I was flown to Philadelphia. And the day of my separation, I was in this, I guess I guess you could call it a concert hall. And boopers were there and they were they they handed me my jacket and I was out. And they kinda I was out the streets of Philadelphia. That was it. No transition. There was nobody there to talk to me, you know, like what I needed to do and stuff like that. So all of that stuff I had to do on my own. Why did you decide to leave? And did you have a plan at all? My father promised me a job in the New York Telephone that he had been working in for 30-something years. But that didn't pan out. So then what did you do? What happened after you decided to leave? Well, I realized that I needed more school because I had I had left when I was very early. I had been signed in on waivers by my parents. So I decided to go out to college and look for part-time jobs when I was taking credits. And how did that work out for you? I never was much of a student. I wound up finding a job full-time, and then I kind of just dropped the school and started working. And kind of went into, like, auto mode, you know, how you, like, do the 9 to 5 and you just kind of live for a while. That was pretty much it. That was my day-to-day. It was just working and paying bills and, you know, getting some experience. I ended up in IT because my father was an electronics expert. So I took school in that, and then I started working for several law firms that needed IT work. And this was all back in, um, was it in Jersey? So I was living in Jersey City, but I was tra- I was uh, taking the trains and the buses to uh, New York. Because uh, I was working in law firms up and down Fifth Avenue. I was in One World Center for a while on a, a company called Hill Betts and Nash. That's a law firm. They had a computer system that needed work, so I got hired. So at this point, did you kind of have, did you retain your identity as a veteran at all, or did you kind of leave that behind when you left the Navy? Didn't want to be associated with military after I left. It was not, my military service wasn't the greatest. There were a lot of people there that were out to, you know, kind of get you. It wasn't like it is nowadays where it's a lot more professional, even though there's still hazing. It was, it's not as prevalent as it is today, or vice versa, I should say. Can you tell us the story of how you got connected to the Mission Continues 
Yeah, so I was at the time working, I was with and I was one of their instructors. And while on one of the events, I met up with someone who was working with the Mission Continues. So I kind of paralleled at the same time. I was While I was an instructor with Team uh, Rubicon, I got introduced to Daniel Perez, who was at the time the platoon leader in New York. Then I started doing events and projects with him. And eventually it wound up being, you know, less and less Team Rubicon and more Mission Continues. And then from there, I just transitioned over from to from Team Rubicon to the Mission Continues. How did you eventually go to become the platoon leader? You know, that was something that I had seen that I recognized that there was a need for it because there were essentially there's five platoons. Four of them are now active. Staten Island is on stand down. And I wanted to be the Queens platoon leader because, of course, I was living in Queens. So uh, at the time, I was talking to Daniel, and it was the other platoon leader for the Bronx. So can you tell me about some of the work that you currently do, and and where do you do it as a platoon leader? I don't know. I just for me, it's about the it's about the work. I really like working with Mission Continues people. They're really understanding. Uh, they have good hearts. They're all out to support you, uh, which you sometimes find in other organizations. So I'm really glad to be able to work in this capacity with Mission Continues. So describe like what it's like to be a platoon leader. What are the things that you have to do? I know you got to visit sites and you got to plan things out. You got to recruit. You know, tell me about like a, some of the work that you do as a platoon leader. So there's a lot of networking involved. You, you know, you have to make contacts with people and try and cultivate partnerships with various organizations. And it takes a lot of work. I mean. The communication-wise, sometimes, uh, you know, people have lives also. It's not a full-time job for the platoon leader. Sometimes it takes a while to cultivate a relationship, and it takes a lot of time. Describe some of the sites that you've been at recently. What, what kind of stuff do you have your volunteers do? We've been working at a, a site called uh, Rincon. It has a, a full name. I don't have it in front of me right now. We've been working them for several years, helping their, it's a garden really, in the Bronx. And they just achieved a landmark status for New York State. So there is there are certain sites in New York State that are recognized as uh, historic sites. This place happens to be the, the birthplace of a music style called Plena. And that's one of the things that they've been recognized for. So they get to, you know, they get to be in this a category that they are added to. A lot of this year has been uh, with regard to uh, my focus specifically in Queens has been really on green spaces and, and gardens and farms and so on and so forth. Can you tell me, how does this help the community that you're serving in? You know, it's been harder than I thought. I thought people were going to be a lot more receptive, <laughs> to, to, to be honest. I've reached out to a lot of places in my area, and I don't know if they are active or whether or not, but I'd say 90% of them do not return your emails or contact or phone calls. So it's been it's been hard to kind of you know, cultivate the amount of partners that I was looking to be able to do. So it's been harder than I thought, pretty much. But you've had some success, right? So can you talk about what that means to the community? Well, 
community means that they get a lot more of, of their their wants done, I guess, or their their dream sheet. Um, I guess you could call it that. The continues has the the how and the why in order to do that. It's just a matter of getting together with these people and getting a plan together, and then and then working on an actual event and getting it done. On a personal level, what does this do for you? Why do you do it personally? I want to say about ten and a half years ago, Superstorm Sandy happened in Queens, and that was kind of my catalyst to get things started. I I've known people in that area. Some of those people were my friends, and I and I recognized a catastrophic failure of response to it. So I joined uh, New York Cares. I became a, a team leader with them, and for I'd say about four and a half years, myself and other teams were going out to the Rockaways and up and down, all the way up and down from Far Rockaway to Arburn, just going in and rebuilding, demoing homes for two years and then rebuilding homes for another two and a half. And that got me started with, you know, being, a, I don't know if you want to call me a professional volunteer, but since then I have looked for other organizations to be able to do more of that kind of volunteering. So why do you volunteer? I mean, some people simply don't, right? Because they would rather do something else. But why do you do it? Well, I mean, for me, I guess it's, I just want to say good karma when people ask me. It's just good karma. You know, something might happen later on where I need need help and those people that I've helped might be able to help me. So it's just, you know, one hand washed to the other. So you were recently awarded during the last MAP deployment a fundraising award for being one of the top fundraisers. Can you talk about mm-hmm. the work that went into doing that? I mean, that's for me, that's just a thing. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I, I appreciate it immensely, but it's not something that, I mean, I, I devote my time and not more of my money, but to, you know, organizations, because I think that was more of a value than just, you know, I understand money works, but, you know, putting hands on things and, and getting things done to me is more valuable than just giving somebody money. You know, the money that people give, can you talk about where does it go in terms of the work that you do as a platoon leader? Well, yeah, every everything that gets built is for a reason. In the end, it's going to help uh, the partner focuses or what their wants are. How else I can explain that? You know, so a lot of times the partners need not just manpower, but also financial power, because obviously these things cost money. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, when you fundraise, a lot of times people can't give their time, but they can give their, their money. And so for some people, you know, to me, it's just incredible how you do both. Like you, you not only give your time, but then you encourage people to give their money as well. And that kind of doubles the impact. And I look at what you guys post on Facebook and, it, and and the things that you guys do. And I think it's incredible. I just wish more people understood that if if you donate, like this is where your money goes to. We're on, so we're on pace for 90 events for the year so far. And uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's a good problem to have, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. How, how did you come to do 90 events this year? Well, I mean, when you work and then the platoons are kind of unique. I mean, first of all, you, you know, we have, I mean, millions of people and, and so many organizations and so many businesses that are looking for help. It's not our time. So 
Now, some of these were existing from partners from years before were brand new. So it, it's just a matter of, I mean, I demand, I want to say. I mean, you know, we can supply it and they demand it. So it's out for us. Can you talk about some of the demands that some of your partners are need or are asking for? Well, one of the stock partners that I started this year are they're out in Far Rockaway. It's just a they're a green thumb park, and they're they're just a, um, like a like a maybe a lot that is two abandoned houses that were knocked down. So now it's just a green space, and they have a mosquito problem. So I have to go and look around for plants that repel them, along with uh, some traps maybe for next year, some mosquito traps. So that's. That's a little out there. But still, I mean, nobody nobody likes mosquitoes, and those can lead to health issues later on in life. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually am going to, I have a, a, a hydroponics here in my house, and I'm actually going to start the plants that I'm going to give to the partner and all of the gardeners in there that they can use in their boxes, their planted boxes, to naturally repel the mosquitoes. Incredible. Things that you don't even think about, but are immensely impactful in little ways. You know, it's always the things that mm-hmm. people don't notice that make the biggest impact. Yeah. So tell me about, like, what does it take to be a platoon leader? I know you mentioned that it takes a lot of communication and, you know, but what mm-hmm. in order to be a platoon leader, what kind of skills do you need to be successful? You have to have a gift of gab. You have to be on an even keel. You can't, you know, I mean, I have references myself but i'll never tell anybody what they are of course so when anybody asked me to say i'm green well, i thought i never would be I, I thought i'd be more mechanical but green in new york is something that is disappearing on a record level and that's not good for you know new york city so i think about six hours away from becoming master certified for composting in new york city i'm in that program right now I just need a couple of volunteer hours and I'm sent to master composter. And uh, composting, I've been doing it for years in Brooklyn with a place called Red Hook Farms. They're the law and all renewable energy composting program in the United States. So, and I love working with them. I've been working with them for years. And a lot of the new partners that I found are, you know, green thumb parks that I've looked in Queens to try and cultivate. With. So this is going to be kind of a hard question, but I'm just curious to see, just to know your thoughts. You know, we're we're coming to like a new chapter in in American history now with the stand down of of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're seeing a lot of you know veterans now from that era. You know, and I, I right. include myself in that. You know, I joined. I I saw 9/11 when I was in seventh grade, and I joined in 2007. But I'm curious as to what you think those veterans need once that they're leaving the military and coming into into America now. What, what do you think those veterans are going to need moving forward? Well, they're going to need support. I mean, you know, it's a transitioning out from any any kind of like military service is hard. I mean, for me, you know, it was a little bit different because at the time, like I said, there were I mean, there wasn't any support. There was literally just here's your jacket and you're out the door. I know there's a lot more organizations out there today than there were to help people transition. You know, there's the American Legion, there's the VFW, you know, there are other organizations like TMC and Team Rubicon and 
Red, White, and Blue and uh, Wounded Warrior Project. I mean, I'm naming names, but, you know, but there's a lot more organizations out there. And that's what they need to do. They need to get involved in these organizations and and talk about, you know, their experiences with other veterans. That's the I think that's a big thing is to be able to, you know, share your experiences, get them out in the open. If you have problems, you know, with, you know, mental issues or if you have, you know, get somebody, you know, don't don't just sit there in the, you know, in the room by yourself. It doesn't help you and it doesn't help your family. It doesn't help anybody. So I'm wondering if, if you can share any moment of your time as a platoon leader or even just volunteering that were very memorable to you or that you had an impact. So, so maybe it was a little bit personal, but so we, there were, there was a, there was a small tree that needed to be taken down. So they had this small little chainsaw to, to cut with and myself and Mary Beth and a couple of other people. And I kind of just, since I had been a chainsaw instructor with team Rubicon, I was kind of the one person there that knew how to use the saw and how to work with it and kind of safety procedures and so on and so forth. But I just, after the saw, I handed it to Mary Beth and I said, this is what you do. This is how you cut it. And, you know, five minutes later, the tree was laying on the ground and Mary Beth had this big, humongous smile on her face. And it was like, that's the kind of thing that that's impactful to me, that people learn things that I know that I can transfer my learning onto them. Yeah, that'll do it. I mean, that's I've seen that before when I when I've been at a project and you see somebody operating a table saw that has never mm-hmm. operated before, or they they didn't even think to themselves that they would ever see themselves operating a table saw, but right. then they do it and they realize, wow, this is easy. All it takes is just me stepping up and doing the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, and you won't know until you try it. So. And and having someone there learning, you know, that has the action in order to do it and walking you through the process makes it a whole lot easier than to just jump on the machine and, you know, maybe make a mistake, you know. I mean, it's kind of similar to transitioning out of the military, right? Mm, yeah. Kind of depends on how you're feeling at the time, you know. I mean, there's the separation itself. You're you're used to a certain lifestyle, and then that's gone, and then there's nothing to replace it with. So you have to kind of build up your own, you know, life again as to what you want to do and how you see it, and it's it's there's a lot involved. Surfing in a platoon, like for example, a New York City platoon, does it kind of help you? Does it help veterans transitioning out like that? You know, that's kind of hard to gauge. I would say that the camaraderie, most of all, is something that really helps. You know, the the just being around other veterans and just being able to talk, you know, is is a really good thing. I mean, I I still to this day, you know, are able to talk to veterans better than I can talk to civilians. And I've been out for like, you know, since 40 something years and I still feel more comfortable around veterans. Well, is there anything else you want to share with us, Lawrence? Anything that's really important to you personally or professionally that you think more people should know about? For myself, I knew that going into the platoon leader position was going to be challenging because it's not having a a platoon leader in a position for several years. You're going to have to start from the ground up. So you have to be the driving force. You know, you're going to have to do a lot of work. So, you know, just be prepared 
and and if you, you know if there's setbacks, then there are setbacks. You can take those as learning moments, not as failures, but as learning moments, and just keep continue on. I'm you know I'm not I'm not stopping in any way, shape, or form. I'm just as a matter of fact, when 2000 rolls around, I'm going to do the same thing I was doing last year, maybe even more so. That's awesome to hear. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much okay. for your time. Thank you so much for your service. No uh, on behalf of, of the Mission Continues, I just want to say thank you so much for all of the work that you do. And I hope that people will get a glimpse into the incredible work that you do with the New York City Platoon. Once again, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, David. All right. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are The Mission Continues. We invest in veterans and under-resourced communities, developing new skill sets and equipping a growing veteran volunteer movement with the tools to drive positive change. To find more resources and to get involved, visit us at missioncontinues.org. See you on the next episode of the Boots on the Ground podcast presented by The Mission Continues. Charlie Mike, continue the mission.